Hi there, this is Nick Fletcher, and this is the 15th installment of Interview with the PD Pod, and I'm broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia. My guest today is a very special one. He is my first international guest. Uni Narayan is a professor of orthopedics from the University of Toronto who has a big interest in the management of cerebral palsy. I have not known Uni personally, but have been watching him and listening to him in meetings for quite a while and have always been incredibly struck by his passion for neuromuscular patients, uh, which is something that we share. Uni is originally from India, having graduated from the Madras Medical College, which is in the south of India on the Bay of Bengal. Um, he came to the University of Minnesota in the late 80s and uh, graduated from the medical school in 1987. He was a fellow in the CP and gait analysis program there with Jim Gage in the mid-90s before doing a second fellowship in Toronto, where he has stayed ever since. He did do a two-year Master of Science degree at the University of Toronto after he graduated from his second fellowship, which has served him well. I really enjoyed this discussion with Uni. I think that he's incredibly insightful and that he has a wonderful perspective on management of cerebral palsy. As many of you, I'm sure, are aware, he is the godfather of the CP child patient-reported outcome measure, and so it was very interesting to hear his background on that and the genesis of that project. So, as always, I cannot be more appreciative of your willingness to listen to me drone on for hours with some of my guests. This is such an enjoyable process for me, and I'm glad that many of you like it, too. I am looking forward to our upcoming POSNA annual meeting, and hopefully I'll get to see a lot of you there in person. And if you have not, please also check out our other podcast that Carter Clement and his team puts on regarding uh, recent research in pediatric orthopedics. Thank you, and enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Uni Narayan. So uh, I'm welcoming Uni uh, into the podcast today uh, as uh, I'm incredibly excited to have him on. He is our first uh, international guest. He's also uh, my first guest who has a interest in neuromuscular population and uh, especially in uh, cerebral palsy, which is something that I really enjoy taking care of and I enjoy the, the patients a, a lot. So Uni, thank you again for being here today. Thank you, Nick, for the invitation. I'm really excited to be uh, contributing. So I wanted to start out, um, as I mentioned, you are my first international guest, but actually you're my first, I believe, non-domestically born guest. And you come, uh, you're from India originally. And I'm sort of curious if you could give us a little bit of an idea as to how you made it from what I would guess is the relatively warm area in southern India that you grew up in to the frigid cold of uh, Minnesota and uh, and how that process occurred. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a long story. I'll try and make it uh, short. But uh, yeah, I, I was born in India. My, my parents still lived there. I grew up there. I went to medical school there. My journey to, to North America was uh, largely influenced by my wife, who I met uh, a year after medical school in, in India, where I was doing an internship. And I had an opportunity to work with an orthopedic surgeon, uh, which got me interested in, in, in the field. During medical school, I was already interested in, in, in surgery and pediatric surgery of some form. So that was quite early. Uh, but I wasn't sure what subspecialty in surgery I'd focus on. It wasn't until that exposure uh, with this orthopedic surgeon, 
after my internship year, which is sort of the last year of a medical school uh, in India, you do five as a medical school and one year internship, which is part of your medical school training. Uh, where you're exposed to, you know, different uh, subspecialties, very much like uh, the first year internship here, but it's 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 prior to your residency. Anyway, during that time, I met my wife, uh, who is American. Well, she's half Indian, half American, and was living in the states. Uh, was in graduate school in uh, Michigan at the time, and was visiting India on holiday. She had lived with her parents in India till you know she was in her early teens before they moved back to the states. And so she was coming to India to visit old friends and 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 her, her grandmother, and happened to come to the city that I I grew up in, and knew a family whose kids and I went to the same school together, and those kids were away, and so one thing led to another. There was an introduction, and we just met, and um, she changed her travel plans. We spent a little, got got to spend a little time together. She went back to the states. Six months later, she came back to India. We did some traveling together. We clearly struck a connection there, and she persuaded me to think about coming to the States. My plan was to go to the UK. My mother's English, my father's Indian, and, and I'd already had plans to do that, and I, and I did. As it turned out, I went to the UK for a year to do the first year of your orthopedic residency as a senior house officer job. My wife-to-be uh, joined me there. We still weren't married. Uh, we weren't even engaged. Uh, she spent six months with, with me there, and um that's when I decided, okay, I should perhaps uh, do my um, national medical graduate exams. Uh, it was the, it was the, uh, to ECFMG, it was the national medical boards, the NBME at the time before the USMLE. Uh, so I, I took part one, finished my year in the UK and came and visited her, her in the States um, and traveled around. I spent about three or four weeks and I visited several programs that I knew were very good orthopedic programs. Uh, essentially, I wrote ahead of time to introduce myself um, and and express express my interest in in pursuing a career in orthopedic surgery and recognizing that uh, uh, although I had the opportunity to come to the states, I, I was under no illusions about the challenges about getting a foothold into the uh, into residency program in the United States as uh, being a foreign medical graduate, in orthopedics in particular. Uh, but I was seeking advice, and um, I was very, very lucky. I got to meet a lot of good people in many places, um, enough to establish that uh, it was going to be very difficult, but not impossible. And uh, I went back to the UK, finished my year there, and then came back to States, and by this time my wife and I were engaged. Uh, we then got married, uh, and I did the second part of my national medical boards and then devoted the next year to applying for a residency program. Um, one of the people I met was, uh, because my wife's uh, family were based in the Bay Area in Northern California, uh, I had visited uh, UC Davis in Sacramento, uh, among other places. And um, there I met Mike Chapman, who was chair of the program, um, and mm -hmm. George Rabb, who was a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And I'd written ahead of time and spent uh, to ask if I could spend a day with them. This this is my during my first trip to the States. And at the time, uh, I, I spent a day uh, sort of observing in the operating room. They were, they were, you know, very welcoming. And at the end of the day, I got to speak with Mike 
Chapman, who uh, just as luck would have it, had been doing an operation on a high tibial osteotomy on, on someone with you know, compartmental osteoarthritis. And as far as he was concerned, I was, you know, a year out of medical school, had done a, you know, a year of orthopedic surgery. And I, and I asked him a question about the operation. And um, uh, during my time in India, while I was working with the other orthopedic surgeon there, he had started doing an opening wedge type uh, itibial osteopathy, which was pretty revolutionary at the time. And, uh, yeah. and Mike Chapman was doing it the conventional closing wedge sort of thing. And so I, I just mentioned, I, you know, I asked, so he, he, it piqued his curiosity. So he asked me a few questions, and I'd done a research project on that, and I'd got a, 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 a regional award for it. And so I think it surprised him that, that I could have a conversation about something uh, as nuanced as that. And uh, again, I'm speculating here. Um, uh, nevertheless, he spent about an hour of his time then to, to give me some general advice. And his advice was, listen, don't go into research. You're a foreign medical graduate. Nobody knows who you are or where your letters of recommendation are from. Uh, people would be it, it would not know whether you can speak the language, how you relate to people, etc. Uh, try and get a, an internship position in general surgery. There are these transitional positions. Then you work as, a, as, a, as an intern along with your peers. That allows people to recognize, uh, you know, uh, what you're like. You can use that as a stepping stone. And that was very, very sage advice. And that's, in fact, what I did. I applied to the match, didn't get a single orthopedic uh, uh, interview, uh, but applied to the very good general surgery programs uh, in places that I had established some contact in the orthopedic program as well. Uh, so it was UCSF, UC Davis in Sacramento, UC San Diego, Mass General in Boston, uh, a, a program in Chicago and one in New York. Anyway, I, I matched at UC Davis uh, in Sacramento. And that's a long story uh, for another time. But uh, I had a fantastic year there. And uh, the following year, uh, or during that time, I uh, applied and uh, got only two interviews, UC Davis and, uh, and Mayo Clinic. Um, uh, so the stigma of being a foreign medic graduate was still pretty uh, you know, difficult to overcome, despite very strong letters from, uh, from my uh, uh, mentors at UC Davis. And they told me that they ranked me high enough to get, in the, get into the program uh, um, based on their previous year which meant I was not in their top three because they only took three and then they took one from the uh, Navy. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a fantastic program. So they had really good people. So I trusted their judgment. Uh, but, you know, uh, my wife at the time was doing her PhD um, at the University of Chicago. Uh, she'd had a choice. To, she could go to UC Berkeley, UC Chicago. Uh, she's a social worker. And because I didn't know where I'd be the following year, you know, we decided that she should go to the program that was best suited for her interests. So she went to Chicago. And uh, that was a difficult year living apart. Uh, she'd visit me once a month, but it really freed me up as an intern to sort of really immerse myself, take call every other night, volunteer, et cetera. And halfway through the year, I, I was, you know, I, I was offered spots in plastic surgery, neurosurgery, urology, um, and I was ranked in orthopedics. So, you know, it was, it was, it was great. But on match day, um, uh, you may not know it, but as a foreign medical graduate, the way you learn about your results are on USA Today. Okay. Uh, your number is published on a, 
on a two-page ad that has these, these you know, thousands of numbers there. Holy and, um, uh, and I'd also, you know, based on um, some advice I'd been given, I also thought because, I, you know, I'd only interviewed at Mayo Clinic and at UC Davis, there was a very strong chance that I wouldn't match in either place. And I negotiated with the dean of the medical school at UC Davis, who was a urology professor that I'd worked under. And I said, look, I, as a foreign medical graduate, um, I don't have access to the list of unfilled positions um, or, uh, until 24 hours after the match is announced. And I understand that American medical students get that, you know, pretty much uh, right away. W- when you get that, would you be able to share that list with me so that I can be prepared in case I, you know? And he said, of course. Um, and uh, and so he did. And so I was ready with three packages to FedEx just in case I, I hadn't... Um, I didn't match. <laughs> well, I got a I got a call. Um, so uh, Anita was in Chicago. So this is you know she got up at uh, five o'clock her time. So it would have been three o'clock in the morning in California. And she said, "Uni, your number's not here." So I, I hadn't matched. Uh, so I was devastated, of course. Um, so one of the unfilled positions was at the University of Minnesota. They had never had an, un, uh, uh, an unfilled position before. And rumor had it that that year, the University of Minnesota medical students decided to boycott their program because they'd had a falling out with the chair of the program at that time. Um, anyway, so uh, later that day, uh, Mike Chapman, who was away, uh, contacted me, as did uh, um, uh, others. And uh, they must have made some calls because the next day, uh, I got a phone call from the University of Minnesota. You know, I recognized the the area code uh, and uh, six one two, I think, if I remember correctly. And 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 I thought, okay, it's probably the secretary saying spots are taken. Uh, but no, it was uh, Roby Thompson on the other end of the line. And talk about a phone call can, that can transform your life. That was it. And uh, twenty minutes later, I had a position. Uh, the condition was that I had to do a year of research. And I said, I know little or nothing about research, but I'd love to learn. Uh, and, um, you know, he said, we, we, you know, you in, you'd um, applied to us, but we didn't interview because you had no connections to Minnesota. And I said, I have no connections to anywhere in the States, you know, I'm, you know and uh, anyway, so, so I, I, that's how I got to Minnesota. And, uh, and then came to Toronto for a fellowship I chose Toronto because um, uh, Toronto was one of 12 sites around North America that had was affiliated with the, the their University of Toronto or or whatever their local university was uh, to to do a master's in public health or clinical epidemiology, and I had applied for and I got um, uh, the Health Services Research Fellowship Award from AOS and OREF to do a two-year commitment after my fellowship. And uh, Sick Kids uh, in Toronto with Jim Wright there um, offered that combination that I was very, very excited to do. And that was essentially based on that one year of research that I did uh, during my residency between my fourth and fifth year uh, that opened my eyes to the possibilities. And then I recognized that to do this well, you really need to uh, learn the language of clinical research. And what better way to do that than actually... Uh, do a master's degree um, uh, or an advanced degree, which is what I, which is what I did, and one of the smartest uh, decisions I made. It was uh, trans- transformational.
So I came to Toronto for a fellowship that is and, um, uh, and I had a job to come back to at the University of Minnesota, but they offered me a position at SickKids uh, and uh, it was a difficult decision, but the right one to make and I chose to stay. So I was going to ask you uh, a question about your time in Minnesota, because clearly the t- your time there had uh, guided you towards an interest in cerebral palsy. And as a background, uh, I, I don't know if you overlapped with them, but my partner here is Bob Bruce, who is also a graduate, um, I think around the same time. And he is, you know, a Jim Gage disciple and absolutely loved everything that happened at Minnesota. And I think also did a fellowship around the time you were there. What What is it about the, the time at Minnesota and the mentors who are there that that sort of have that calling to people to want to, to, you know, take care of children with neuromuscular differences. So Bob Bruce was my chief resident when I was, uh, 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 during my first year of my orthopedic residency program. So yes. when I, you know, during my second year of my residency at, at, in Minnesota, so when I just started the orthopedic part of it, uh, Bob Bruce was one of the chief residents. So I know him, uh, well, <laughs> um, and you know, it's an, I think, all of this goes back to perhaps the culture that was set by Jim Gage. You know, Jim Gage had gone to Newington, uh, and he was a real pioneer and a, and a, and a thinker. Um, and um, he, you know, he set the stage coming back to, to, to Gillette to set this fantastic program, and um, uh, and and the people who who worked with them uh, were all part of that. Uh, that I benefited from. So it was it, my my residency training was was fantastic. Now I, one of the things that I negotiated very early was when I had the chance to do my research here. I asked if I could do it uh, later on between my fourth and fifth year, so I, I I could then focus on areas that I would be interested in, and um, and so that's what I did between my fourth and fifth year. I spent a year in the Gate Lab. Um, uh, with Jim Gage and Tom Novacek, and it was sort of a, a, a CP fellowship, um, uh, essentially, during that year. Um, and they, you know, a major focus of Gillette was cerebral palsy. And there were two ch- pediatric uh, experiences that we got. One was at Gillette, and the other was at the Shriners Hospital, which was uh, um, in the Twin Cities as well. And so we did our junior rotation at Gillette and our senior rotation at the Shriners uh, but they, the two groups at the time worked very closely, to, you know, t- uh, together. Uh, Lyle Johnson was the chief at, at, at the shrine, um, but I, I think it was Jim Gage's interest that that set the the tone for that that focus on cerebral palsy. Um, uh, but of course, they did a, a broad spectrum of everything else as as well. Um, but I was a beneficiary of of, of that and uh, got to take full advantage of that year. Uh, which then influenced my my subsequent interests and uh, and uh, career trajectory. No question about it. That's good. And and I also want to ask you about your um, masters in is it master in public health? Is that is that so the it, formally it was a what? master's in clinical epidemiology? It's it's very similar. Okay. It's very similar. Uh, it's a little bit more. Uh, it would be very. It, it's almost identical. Um, yeah, it, it's the, the focus on clinical epidemiology, healthcare research methods, and clinical epidemiology is the basic science of clinical research. The MPH uh, fulfills the same uh, role. Uh, the MSc in clinical epidemiology requires a thesis, so that's one, uh, one way it distinguishes itself. Gotcha. So um, 
the question is, I'm very close friends with Ben Shore. And we, we, we came out of fellowship at the same time. We've, we've maintained a very close friendship. But I remember when he was going through his graduate uh, training, and I remember you know, just the natural component of, of transitioning from a, fe- of a fellowship to your practice is there's a lot to learn. You think that you know everything, obviously, but there's a lot to learn about being a clinical physician. And then during that period of time, you threw yourself right into a totally different area. And how did you maintain some level of clinical proficiency? How did you not worry that you were going to lose so much of your orthopedic surgeonness while you're becoming a clinician scientist? So it's, it's, it's the dream transition that I actually had. So as it turned out, because, you know, when I signed up to go to Sick Kids, this was part of the package. And so uh, after my clinical fellowship year, my two subsequent years, I was considered sort of the, the, the senior uh, fellow. So ah. I, I, uh, it, my, my commitment to the MSc program was full time, but I had a clinic once a week. Um, that I ran on my own as a source, sort of as an associate staff, uh, and I took call, um, trauma call, not as a fellow, but as sort of the the attending. Um, so there was a you know normal other a consultant or attending also on call, but essentially I made sure that I I covered everybody's calls. So I took one uh, one day of call each week uh, for for trauma, and then uh, one week every fourth weekend. So this way. I continued to remain very clinically active. I could teach residents and fellows, so that that part of it was very, I enjoyed that very much, and so that was that was uh, very helpful. And I ran a clinic, and from that clinic, anything that was elective, I could then uh, that needed operating, I could I could create a list. So that would be every couple of weeks or so that I would I would generate the odd case or two that I would do. Um, so this kept me, you know, clinically involved in a very nice transition. So it was not as if I was, do, you know, sep- separated from the clinical room at all. Um, so that's that, terrific. Yeah. yeah, that's convenient. Absolutely. Very convenient for, for the building of practice. Do you, when you counsel people who may want to come out to who, and, and do a similar course, whether they want a, you know, uh, uh, you know, business degree or a science, a scientific degree, that they need to have some sort of overlap and uh, to allow them to stay clinically proficient. Um, do you think it's feasible to take a six month or a year sabbatical, if you will, from training? Or excuse me, from a practicing. Yeah, so, so in my case, you know, I was it was fully funded. You know, it was it yeah. was still at a fellow salary uh, at the time. It was generous. I mean, it was I think it was seventy five thousand dollars a year from the AOS ORF. And by the way, there's a you know uh, lots of people have done this. Uh, I was by no means the be- uh, the first. Uh, Min Corker, I think, did it. I think uh, Mike Vitale also, you know, was a beneficiary of this of this of this program. Jim Wright had done an MPH uh, quite a few years before that, so it, there was already a cadre of pediatric orthopedic surgeons who who, who were doing this uh, um, at the time. Now, what was great is, you know, you have to have a department that recognizes the value of this and invest in in providing you the opportunity to stay, you know, to allow you to stay clinically uh, um, involved uh, at the same time, protecting your time so that you can focus on, you know, uh, mastering a, a skill set, which, which is, uh, which is one of the reasons why I chose to stay at Sick Kids because this was a real um, culture that they set there um, and, and continues when you're in practice that, um, you know, if, if you have 
funded research, uh, they will give you protective time, and you're not penalized for that. Um, so it's it you know you're not um, making you're not getting remunerated less because a certain percentage of time is devoted to to academic pursuits. It's treated all equally. And uh, it's in our interest to protect each other's time to allow us to do that. And 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 that was one of the reasons why I chose to uh, stay at Sick Kids. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's obviously been uh, a pretty nice marriage. Yeah, going on twenty I, I, years. It looks I, like I pinch yeah. myself. You know, uh, after three years in Toronto, <laughs> I had a choice to make. Uh, it helped that my my wife uh, uh, enjoyed Toronto very much. Um, so uh, it wasn't. Uh, you know, it wasn't a, a difficult choice to make in terms of our living circumstances. We owned a home in the Twin Cities that we were renting out because we had every intention of going back. And again, talk about luck because uh, the it it, appre- it appreciated value quite considerably uh, during the uh, three years that we were. Uh, well, you know, we owned it. We we bought it very early in during residency, so we'd owned it for about six or seven years uh, by the time we were ready to sell, and we closed. Um, two days before September 11. You know that's how lucky we wow. were, and the market crashed right. Holy after, cow! Right, right yeah. after that, and 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 so that allowed me to make a afford a down payment in Toronto, where the cost of uh, living and housing is is considerably higher. But uh, uh, anyway. yeah. <laughs> talk about that's amazing yeah yeah that's that's some luck there too well good well i wanted to transition over to your some of your work with cerebral palsy and i've had as i mentioned i've had you know mike vitale who you alluded to and min coker um larry lanky and some hip people on but i've not had anybody uh who's who has uh been sort of predominantly specialized in cerebral palsy and neuromuscular differences and I know why I love it. I mean, I know why I love to, taking care of the kids, but I'd love to hear from you. You know, what what drove you, other than the, than the mentors, but but from a patient standpoint, what drove you to care for children with cerebral palsy with really all of your, your life's energy? Um, because I think it's great. And obviously, knowing Bob as well, he is as passionate as you are about it. Right. Well, I, I have to say that the, the primary reason was definitely my, the exposure I got during my residency. And, um, you know, it was not just the exposure to the patient population, but it was also um, the, the way it was done, the compassion, um, the thoughtfulness and the care that went with it um, was, uh, you, you know, that in, in, in focusing on a population that have a chronic condition that's not really curable, uh, but for whom we can make uh, big differences um, if we're thoughtful about them. So, you know, that once I was exposed to that, then it became very appealing. And and immersing yourself in it, I I think, opens your eyes. Um, uh, again, I, I, I'm not sh- sure this is a fair comparison, but uh, lack of exposure to it, I think, makes it seem more intimidating than it really is, right? So So people who haven't being exposed to it might have this conception, misconception that it's a challenging uh, population, um, and and um, and sure, but but you know I think w- w- with the right exposure, uh, your eyes are open to the poss- uh, to the possibilities. It's kind of like uh, low back pain uh, to the uh, to the general orthopedist. You know that you know it just seems like. Uh, uh, I don't want to take care of that. It just seems too complicated or too too messy. 
Um, but you know, it's it's uh, you, you you look after kids with cerebral palsy, and uh, I'd venture to guess you find it very gratifying work. Um, the one thing that that um, you know, building on the experience that I had doing my residency and then that that research year, almost a fellowship year uh, in Minnesota, I then came to Sick Kids where. Um, you know, Mercer Rang was one of my mentors. In fact, I was his last fellow. And oh, wow. cerebral palsy was a major focus of, of his. Yeah. And what under, you know, working with him, I got to question um, dogma and to begin to think about the bigger picture in a way that perhaps I had not been exposed to before. You know, uh, and, and, and really that... Uh, is what got me thinking about, you know, are we making a difference to the lives of these kids, and how would we even, how do, we, how would we even know? And that took me on 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 a pathway of of um, trying to define that in a, and quantify that in a more rigorous way. Uh, and my research program sort of came came from that. Um, so you know, it was, it was Mercerang at Sick Kids and Jim Gage, who's a scientist. You know, he he always questioned things as well, and had a great way of teaching and explaining things and thinking about things. You know, those two uh, people, I think, really got me uh, excited about looking. Uh, you know, uh, being involved with this uh, with this particular population, and and that interest has remained. Having said that, it's not the only population I work with. My other big uh, uh, love and interest is uh, complex low limb deformity, and one, um, so during my my residency, I was exposed to to Mark Dahl. Um, who, who that's his, his focus. And he's an incredibly thoughtful surgeon, a, a, a real thinking planner, taught me the importance of, of, of really thinking about things and planning ahead of time and, um, and exposed me to a very high sophisticated level of how to look after, you know, thinking about deformities, deconstructing them and, and, and taking care of them. And so that's my second love. Um, and it's a perfect foil to the CP. So the, com- the, the compl- you know, those two elective practices are very complementary that uh, make my, my clinical work life uh, very exciting. And of course, I do a broad potpourri of, of, of uh, uh, miscellaneous uh, general pediatrical speaks from, you know, uh, I did a lot of club foot, a lot of DDH uh, in the past. Those are all sort of you know, it, it, the the model that we have at Sick Kids is that we tend to have a you know one or two areas of focus which overlaps with somebody else's one of somebody else's areas of focus. So there is that overlap, but we try and sort of compartmentalize so we can focus on these populations more. And so um, to, right now it's it's CP and lower limb deformity are the two areas that I focus on. And of course, we all do trauma and I do, we do a lot of it. And um, that's another area of interest for me. So it's not all great. Yeah, no, I I know, I know. And and, uh, you've actually got some great publications in trauma, um, including one of my all time favorites, which where you were uh, that I think you presented in Denver, uh, where you had MRI'd a bunch of distal fibulas and found out that in fact, most of them are not uh, Fysial fractures, which uh, I, I cite on a almost daily basis, I feel like in my practice. So, yeah, um, that was, that was uh, you know an example of of, of dogma that uh, we've just sort of uh, taken for granted, and and which has implications because based on that, people were protecting their weight bearing and putting treating them in casts and so on when when they can be treated like ankle sprains, essentially. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So when you came to, I'm, I'm going to continue to focus on CV for a little bit because um, I'm, I'm really interested on your thoughts on a few things. When you came to Toronto, was the machine that you have there now at all sort of up and running? Did you have a gate lab? Did you have the multidisciplinary component? Y- yes. Um, so, that, you know, uh, the gate lab was there um, and actually, ironically, was more functional then than it is now on a clinical basis. Um, so, so gate analysis in, in Toronto or Ontario in general and certain other parts of Canada is not clinically funded. Uh, but Holland Blow, uh, at the time it was Blowview Macmillan, is a children's rehab hospital, which is where the gate lab is, is located. Uh, they funded the gate lab out of their own foundational, uh, foundational money as well. So, um, however, because it was not funded by the Ministry of, of, of Health, we only got it sort of selectively when, when we needed to. Um, and one of the burning questions that I had was, you know, coming from Gillette, where the you know, without gate analysis, you shouldn't be doing the surgery was sort of the, uh, was, was, uh, was the mantra. Um, the, and, and recognizing that around the world, and certainly North America, uh, there were lots of places that were doing a lot of CP surgery that didn't have access to a gate lab, or uh, if they had a gate lab, it was only for research and or insurance wouldn't pay for it. You know, they, that was increasingly becoming uh, a, a problem. And so the question was, uh, you know, we know that gate analysis alters decision making, uh, we know that um, it uh, uh, that it's great for research. It explains so many things, and we've learned a lot from it. But does it make a difference to the outcome? Was a question that to to this day remains unanswered. And and so one of the things that I wanted to do was to do that randomized trial, which in fact we did do. We've completed it, and we're working on sort of some of the analytic uh, the analysis right now. Where, you know, having exp- been exposed to the Gillette model, I was coming to Toronto where it was more selective, um, and yet those kids were doing, seemed to be doing just as well as they were doing in, 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 in the Twin Cities. And so the question was, you know, is, is it, you know, is that true? And how would we even know if we're not getting gate analysis routinely? So we took advantage of the fact that we had the gate lab, and I applied to CIHR, which is like our NIH, uh, to fund a pilot trial, a multi-center pilot trial, essentially to, to randomize kids to uh, where we use the gate analysis or we didn't use it. So everybody got gate analysis um, prior to their multi-level surgery, uh, but half of them, we uh, we sealed the information, put it away. Um, we only saw the video. And the other half, we had the full package of the, you know, the kinematics, kinetics, and the dynamic EMG. Um, and because they all got gate analysis, Parents and kids and the ther- their therapists could be blinded to whether we'd use the gate analysis or not. So it's really the, sort of the the, the, the gold standard um, model for a trial to answer this question. And then part of the pilot study was to ask, you know, which outcome measure should we use to tell, make, to, to, to quantify a difference, you know, which group is better than the other. And we used a whole host of, uh, of outcome measures like the PODC, the, F, the, 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 the FAQ, the FMS, uh, the Activity Scale for Kids, and the GMFM. Because at the time, those were the ones that were sort of the, the, the ones that were being used in all studies that are looking at the functional outcomes after CP multilevel surgery. Uh, but one of the questions we wanted to ask was, well, which of these is more sensitive to change? So let's, let's measure them all. And um, uh, so, 
the it is from that study that the outcome measure that we've developed for ambulatory cerebral palsy, which is called the Gate Outcomes Assessment List or GOAL, was derived from that study. Because what we discovered was that there were many changes that were happening to these kids, many good ones, um, but they were not being captured by any of the other instruments because they had not asked these kids, what is it that you want? And so there were lots of things that they were saying were changed positively in their lives, um, but were not being captured. So these instruments were just not sensed to pick up those uh, those changes. So we were underestimating those benefits on one hand. And secondly... How did you were... find that out? I, I, just, I don't mean to, to, to interrupt you, but how did you find out that the things that you thought were important weren't necessarily the whole picture? Well, very simply, because, you know, after these multi-level operations, um, or any surgery for that matter, I... Ask the kids, okay, has this operation helped you? And some of them will say yes. And so I say, well, how? They say, well, it made me walk better. I say, well, what does that mean? Okay. And I really try not to put words in their mouth. If they, just because they say it's better. You know, of course, they're, they're, they want to believe that it must be better having gone through this. And certainly parents want to believe that. There's a whole... Um, uh, issue of cognitive dissonance that wants them to believe that something must good have, must have come out. So I was trying to probe this way, and I really try and set this example for my residents and fellows as well. You know, ask them. You know, how has this helped you? But ask them to tell you that, uh, and then it opens your eyes because it turns out that sometimes it actually hasn't helped them very much, um, and sometimes it has, and it may be in very surprising ways. And we were, I was, you know, I was beginning to hear things, and I'm very familiar with the outcome measures that were out there, and I was saying. Okay, you said that you found it easier to do X. Well, there's no item about X in any of these questionnaires. And then there's Y, there's, there's Z, and, and, and all these other areas. And also, then I'd say, well, it, has it you know, harmed you in any way? Have you lost certain things? And that was equally interesting. And yes, in fact, in some instances, they had lost a certain set of skills. Um, again, that were not being captured here. So that's when we decided to go back to the drawing board. And we said, all right, you know what? We've got to start from scratch. And we, we did our qualitative work where we interviewed a whole host of, of, of kids who were, who were candidates for orthopedic surgery or, or other gait improvement type interventions and their parents to say, well, what is it that you want out of this? You know, what are you hoping to get out of it? And that's sort of the, the template you start with and understand what their goals and priorities are uh, and use that to inform um, the outcome measures should, that should you know, embed those priorities and goals within them. Because if, if those are their goals and our interventions are intended to address those goals, then it seems it makes, uh, you know, uh, makes sense that then your outcome measure should have those goals included in them. Um, and so that's, that's sort of, it, it built on the work that we'd done for uh, other outcome measures that I, I developed previously for the non-ambry end of the spectrum of cerebral palsy, but also in other areas. And we've got this, this framework on patient priorities that really has informed that body of, of, of work. But that's, that's how we went about it. Yeah, because the CP child, you uh, you spent a lot of time with caregivers as well, sort of finding what was important to them. Yeah, so that was the first one. Um, you know, very early in my practice, uh, one of the neurosurgeons, uh, the development pediatricians, and myself. So you were you were asked this question about you know what the the uh, what was the setup then? It was very multidisciplinary right from the beginning. Um, that we worked with the development pediatricians who functioned very much like the physiatrists do in the states. Uh, they did, you know, they ran the the, the medical management of of of, of tone, 
uh, we had the neurosurgeons involved who were looking at tone from the systemic management, whether it was through rhizotomy, which uh, had been done quite a bit in the, 1990, uh, in the 1990s and kind of lost uh, sort of, they had lost their enthusiasm for it by the early 2000s, by the time I arrived. Uh, and then more recently, there's been a resurgence in, in thinking about it. Uh, we're starting to do it again. Uh, and then, of course, uh, intrathecal baclofen. So there were these multidisciplinary clinics that always had th- physiotherapy involved, orth- orthotics involved, developed pediatrics for the for the medical management of tone, uh, orthopedic surgery, and then neuros- uh, neurosurgery. And and you know that was that, that was well established when Mersarang um, um, was there, and after he retired, and and again, talk about timing. It was his retirement that opened up the position for me to stay on at at, at, at Sick Kids. Um, but we've continued that, sure. um, and it's a, it's a, a, one of the strengths of our program is that multidisciplinary focus. Um, so not every one of our clinics is uh, multidisciplinary, but we have um, dedicated multidisciplinary clinics. So those kids who are in that transition from medical tone management to potentially orthopedic management, we see together. So they're not seeing me the first time when they need an orthopedic operation. We've already got to know uh, you know know them quite well. Uh, in during that transitional phase um, before we then take over. So when you talk uh, uh, to your fellows who are going to be going out all over the country uh, or, you know, uh, all over the U.S. as well, how do you how do you sort of guide them in terms of what it takes to be a successful CP center? Um, does every, uh, they've trained obviously with a gate lab. What if they don't have access to a gate lab? What if they don't have access to quite the breadth of multidisciplinary clinics that you have? What are sort of the bare minimums that, that you can have and still be sort of a, a successful CP center? Um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, the operations are pretty straightforward, uh, right? I think, uh, Jim Gage and Mus Rang, um, and this is being paraphrased many times. It's not the incision. It's really the decision. Yep. Um, and these decisions can't be made in isolation. So uh, really, you know, you can do CP surgery anywhere, but should you do it anywhere is, I think, the, is, is the better question. And, and I think, you know, most places uh, that do it well um, are not doing it in isolation of the other disciplines that are necessary to inform decision making and, you know, o- uh, overseeing the care of these kids. In some places, that oversight is provided by orthopedics, like in Gillette, um, at least at the time, it was pretty much driven by orthopedics, but very multidisciplinary. Uh, in our model, it's 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 not driven by orthopedics. It's very much an interdisciplinary. Uh, so each air, each of the disciplines has sort of a more of a, a, a directional role depending on the stage and, and what the situation is. But we make decisions sort of uh, together. But I think you know, a successful center will be one that tries to replicate some, you know, model like that, that has these multiple disciplines involved. Whether that's in a combination of different institutions that are close by or all in one place, or whether the clinics are all done concurrently or, you know, one at a time, you know, those are, there are obviously efficiencies that can be gained from uh, doing things together. Uh, but doing an isolation, I think, is 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 a mistake, um, uh, because again, it's very easy to think you're helping these kids and doing operations. You know, there's a contracture, fix the contracture, but whether that makes a really meaningful difference to them, uh, if, if this is not part of a program, it's very difficult to ascertain that. 
But in in the states, um, actually, let me use the example of Spine in Canada. So Feroz and I are very close friends, and we actually just got done publishing some research together. And one of the things that we found out was that, and it was looking at length of stay uh, after spine surgery, and and some of his patients travel eight or nine hours because of the nationalized system that he's in. He's the he's the local guy, even though he's nine hours away. Um, whereas obviously in Atlanta, we're not necessarily like that. And it works okay. I feel like in AIS where hopefully you come in for one operation, you go home and in all honesty, for the majority of our patients, if they never saw us again, they probably would get back to doing most of the things that they want to do. But CP is totally different. Do you take care of your entire province? Um, and, and how does, how does the, the necessity for regular follow-up, and at least in our population, I'm sure yours as well, typically families who are a little bit uh, more resource uh, poor uh, than, than others, how does that sort of factor into how CP is cared for in Canada? Yeah. So the, the two disadvantages of Canada is that there are some populations that are far away from the centers, right? So most of the population, we're a tenth of the population of the United States. So there's about 33 million people. The vast majority of them live along the, you know, just north of the U.S. border in the big, in the, in the big cities there. But, you know, I don't know if you've seen the map of, of North America. Uh, you know, Canada extends way, way, way north. And you've got populations that are far removed. Um, so... Uh, from from these centers, and that's just a fact of life. And and by the way, there are places in the United States that you have like like that, where patients will have to travel that sort of distance to get to their nearest uh, center. So in that regard, you know there are there there are perils. But the 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 one the other disadvantage, which is which is unique to Canada, is that the ratio of subspecialists to the the population is still probably much smaller than it ought to be. Uh, and so consequently, you know, uh, take a, the population of Toronto, the, the city itself is about three, three and a half million people. Greater Toronto area is like five or six million people. There's only nine pediatric orthopedic surgeons. You know, even Montreal has 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 as as many more. But you know, take a comparable size city in the United States, and you would have three times more uh, a number of yep. surgeons to serve that population. So consequently, we, we have wait lists. It's not because patients don't have access to care. It's just that they don't. Uh, uh, we are just overwhelmed by the numbers of patients that we have to serve, given the number of subspecialists there are. So those are two disadvantages. The advantage, however, or the difference is, because it's a public-funded healthcare system, there is equity. So whatever the quality of care is, and it's pretty good, everybody has equal access to that, um, in theory anyway. In other words... They just because you, you whether you, you you know wherever, uh, no matter what socioeconomic status you come from, you have access to that free healthcare. Um, so so in in that regard, there's a huge you know there's a huge advantage. So people can you know come. So in 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 Ontario, which is the which has about a third of the population of Canada, uh, Toronto is is you know serves a population of about six million. We've got other children's hospitals in, in the province of Ontario. Uh, there is the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa. There is a, a Children's Hospital in London. There's one in Hamilton. There's one in Kingston. So there's five children's uh, children's centres. So we there's no way we could take care of of you know thirteen million, eleven or twelve million people. Um, but you know we do uh, the the lion's share of work in 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 on, in, in Ontario. 
the, for CP, there is a network of children's rehabilitation hospitals around the province. There's about 20 of them. It's part of the, uh, a system called the Ontario Association of Children's uh, Rehab Centers, the OCAS network. So these are satellites, if you will, that are run by developed pediatricians or physiatrists and have therapists. So the children are in that area, get their care in that area. So it's, it's very decentralized. So they will get their orthotics, their physio. They will even get their spasticity management that's done there. When they reach a certain threshold, mm-hmm. okay, so hip surveillance suggests that their migration percentage is now of concern. They get referred to one of the centers. Or if they've got contractures that are no longer, in, you know, no longer responding to botulinum toxin, for example, they'll get sent, sent to one of the centers. And, you know, we are one of the largest, so we, we see the lion's share of that. But we're not the only ones. So Ottawa will do, has their CP clinic, has, has does London. Uh, there's a center in Hamilton as well. So there's 20 of these AUKUS centers. And Holland Blowview, which is our uh, children's hosp- uh, rehab hospital in Toronto, is the flagship of that. And it's an amazing facility. That's where, uh, you know, all our, C- our chronic populations serve there, the CP clinic, the, uh, the muscular dystrophy clinic, there's a neuromuscular clinic there, the spina bifida clinic, etc. So all of that's there. And what's more, they have an inpatient rehab unit where children can stay after surgery for up to 12 weeks for free. Parent can stay there for free. And they don't miss a day of school because they've got a fantastic school, a regular school uh, in, uh, on the premises. So they go every day to school. Their gym period is when they get their physio. In the evenings, when they stay overnight, they, you know, they get their, their programming. We are one of the only places in the world that has a, you know, you know, these uh, resources. So you, you, you can be, you know, uh, no matter who you are, you still have access to that, and it isn't out of your pocket. You don't have to have special insurance in order to access that. So there's clearly some advantages and, and some disadvantages in terms of wait list that I'm sure Firoz has shared with you uh, in terms of, uh, you know, you yeah, end up, yeah. uh, or he end, ends up doing scoliosis, uh, you know, the curves are much greater than the average curves that perhaps you're seeing. Right. And we have that. Problem. Yeah, absolutely. Their, their curves are, you know, probably 10 degrees bigger than, than a lot of ours. So I'm curious because I, I want to learn a little bit more about CP Child and, and how, you, how you came about creating it. But I want to frame it in uh, a clinical question, which comes up all the time here, which is, you know, hip and spine surgery are two areas in CP care that are obviously very stressful on the patients. And I think outside of a, a large Semmel's procedure, those are the two most isolated large procedures that, that a, a child's going to go through. And yet as a surgeon, uh, a dislocated hip or a severe curve are really a tangible problem that I can correct, right? I have, like you mentioned, it's not the incision, the decision, but those are things that I have the ability to correct. And so I'm curious how your work with the CP child score, and this obviously sort of is is, uh, framed as a question to preface the development of it, but how has that changed how you think through which patient is a good candidate for it? And I've read some of your work that you've done with Pat Cahill. I know you're working with Harms right now on the spine side. I know you've done some stuff uh, as well on the hip side. But how do you use the CP child and what you've learned through the years with that to help frame who the best candidates are? Yeah. And when to say no. Sure. Um, I mean, I don't have to tell you that there is, it is, it has been an area of controversy where uh, in our field where Children at the severe end of the spectrum of cerebral palsy, uh, there is 
half of, spe- of the specialists who believe you shouldn't do anything for them. There's almost a nihilistic approach, right? Because it doesn't make much of a difference. Um, and it's not that they're not well-meaning that they, that they don't care. They just don't think it makes much of a difference to them or that those kids are not particularly affected in terms of their quality of life. So there's, there's that, uh, you know, that's one side of the, of the debate. And the other side of the debate is to say, no, no, hang on a second. The, you know, these operations are operations that we can do and it does make a difference to, to the lives of these kids. The problem was we didn't know the answer that who who was right on that side of the debate because we didn't have a good way to measure them the kinds of out you know in the uh, early 90s late 90s we were beginning to understand that you know to measure outcomes you need to think about it from the perspective of the patient or the pe- or, 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 or the parents so that outcomes measurement movement even pediat- orthopedics in general and pediatric orthopedics uh, had begun to accept that yeah that's probably the better way of doing things and the podsy, for example, was 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 the product of of of, of that mindset, uh, led by the pioneering work of of the likes of Mike Goldberg, who was really you know a, a pioneer in thinking about it this way. However, you then apply a generic outcomes measure that wasn't intended or designed for a particular population. You don't measure much of a difference, and then you make the assumption you're not making a difference. And and so this is a, a you know. Thinking about the right way, but then applying it in the in in the wrong way. So, we very early in my in my practice, the development pediatrician, the neurosurgeon, and myself were got together, and we wanted to know whether we should be using intrathecal baclofen pumps for these children with severe CP because they were very expensive at the time. Uh, they they take away their dystonia and spasticity. Does it have an impact on their quality of life? Is it cost effective? Okay, that was the question. We thought well. Perfect for a randomized trial because you could you could put a pump in, you could put a a, a placebo drug. Uh, you know, it, it it lent itself very well to to answer. And my role in that three group panel um, was to identify which outcome measure we should use uh, to uh, answer that question. Because so in my explorations, quickly turned out that there wasn't a very good one. And since a lot of my uh, you know about. I'd say 35 to 40% of the population I was helping had severe CP. It said, well, that would be a good investment of my time because we're doing a lot for these these kids. Let's figure out how to measure whether we're making a difference to their lives at all. And so that's where the, the, the work on the CP child came from. It was built on the thesis of my master's uh, my, uh, clinical opinion, which was focused on scoliosis, on idiopathic scoliosis, where we were trying to understand what the priorities of, of, of adolescents' idiopathic scoliosis, you know, how do they conceptualize this? So that was a framework that I developed, which would which, which apply to this population. So how do we do it? Well, we started qualitatively. So uh, through, um, I, I worked with a social worker and we planned a qualitative project using something called a phenomenological basis to understand sort of the lived experience of taking care of a child with severe CP. So these, so, so, so we visited the home of a child with severe CP. So GMS is level four and five. And uh, the social worker who did this was armed with a camera and a notepad and was essentially a fly on the wall. Okay, it was it was observing what a typical few hours in the life of these children might be, and we were very purposeful in how we selected these kids. Okay, because you can't do a hundred of them, so we we picked 
the whole range of ages, both males and females, uh, single, uh, you know, a, a single parent looking after uh, a, a child with severe CP uh, or a nuclear family that had multiple siblings or only one child. We did urban, suburban, rural. We picked someone who lived in a high-rise apartment and someone who, you know, could afford an independent, you know, a freestanding house. We did these visits during the school time, uh, you know, when school was in session or during uh, holiday time, because that has different pressures. We did during the evening and during daytime, um, weekend and, and during the work, uh, during the regular week to try and capture what is the impact of looking after a child on the parents and the families, etc. And that work, we gave them a camera. They then took photographs to capture the good, the bad, the ugly for, uh, you know, 12 weeks. They shared the photographs that we went back, did these interviews. And from that came up with, you know, these are the things that are important, of which the health-related issues are the items that form the items of the CP child questionnaire. It had nothing to do with orthopedics. It had nothing to do with, uh, with any particular type of intervention. It came down to four things. It was comfort, in other words, being free of pain, or if you're in pain, to be relieved of pain. So the idea of being comfortable, okay? It was um, ease of care, what, whatever it took to look after that child who relies on a caregiver for most of their activities of daily living, making it easier to look after them so that they could then spend less time doing the caring and more time doing the fun things, which, and they did have fun. You know, there were ways that they could, they could. then health, uh, so things that, you know, contribute to their good health, and finally, quality of life. So the CP child, you know, all the items, there, there are six domains, they will all have an impact in one or more of these areas. And I would argue that any intervention, whether it's medical, nutritional, you know, seizure management, uh, putting the hip back in place or straightening out their spine, it has to make a difference in one or more of those areas. Um, and if it doesn't, you have to ask the question, is it really worth it? And, and so... Once we develop the, you know, the, the, the content, and then the, 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 the next very important part was to, to validate it, to see, well, you know, is this an actual, does it actually measure what's important to them? Um, and having established that now, and then establishing that it was actually sensitive to change, we then had an outcome measure that could actually measure this difference. So in talks that I give, I talk about, you know, now we have the ability to measure that difference. Let's measure the difference. And the harm study group is an example of applying that outcome measure. They choose that as the primary outcome measure for their CP uh, scoliosis. And I run the CHOP study, uh, which, which, is, which now has 700 patients from 11 countries, 28 uh, sites around the world, because the CP child is in 20 languages. So I have, I have patients that are being recruited in this study uh, from uh, countries as disparate as South, you know, South Korea to Sweden, Denmark, Germany, uh, or Poland or Israel, because the CP child is the primary outcome measure is available in all, all these languages. And and we're we're now, you know, we're five years into this project. We've got another six years of funding until skeletal maturity to follow this inception cohort so we can compare natural history to Botox or soft tissue surgery alone or the bone reconstructive surgery versus salvage surgery, uh, you know, to see what differences we're making in, in, in their lives. And this is building on the work, a lot of work that has already established that the natural history of this is one of severe pain and uh, you know, difficulties in challenging and caregiving for the hip, for instance. And that um, you know, the, the previous work that looked at adults and 50% of them with dislocations didn't have pain, you know, those are 
you know, are scratching the surface for many reasons are, are, are flawed and uh, underestimate the impact on, the, on these kids. That still doesn't answer the question, do our interventions make a difference? We're, there's a growing body of evidence saying that they do. They make a big difference. Um, and we now have the measure, means to, to measure it with, with, with instruments like the CP child, which is now being used worldwide for not just orthopedic interventions, but, but for other things as well. Yeah, it was really cool. And in some of the preparation for this, I, I, I'm obviously familiar with the CP child. I've read your original work on it and, and uh, several of the follow-up studies, but I didn't realize until I went on your page, the breadth and the fact, like you said, it's been translated into 20 different countries or 20 different languages. And I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's something obviously to be very proud of for, for what it offers the patients, which is pretty neat. Um, I'm curious because I think one of the things that comes up with it, and I know having, again, being a little bit more familiar with the spine side of things, uh, that the work that you did with Pat Cahill and that group showed that there seems to be some level of a ceiling effect and that the patients who get the most benefit are the patients who have the most benefit to get. So if you have a patient who seems to be functioning quite well and you do spine fusion on them, they probably can't sort of, uh, I think the, the, the line is in the paper that you can't cure their underlying condition. Whereas if you have somebody whose CP score, uh, CP child score is, is, is really poor, that they have a long way to go. So I'm curious, having used this now for, for the better part of a decade and a half, what, what are the biggest limitations that you still see in the, in the instrument? So Nick, I think that, you know, the interpretation of that is, I think, a very different one that I have. We do operations for this population and many things that we do in pediatric orthopedics for two kinds of patients. There's one for whom they already have symptoms that's affecting their life, and they're going to therefore capture that on, on an outcome measure like the CP child with a lower score. And for them, we are reacting to their symptoms and we want to take those symptoms away. So they've got pain, you take away their pain. They have seating difficulties that affects their uh, sitting endurance, therefore, uh, limits how easy they can get in and out of a, you know, their chair. And all of that will be captured in the CP child. You correct that, it should improve. So that's one group. But we forget that many of the patients that we operate on, we are doing to prevent something bad from happening in the future. So they are not yet impacted by it. Not yet. Our understanding of the natural history is that next year or two years from now, they will be. But we recommend the surgery now, for good or bad reasons, to be answered. But we recommend surgery now because it's easier on them. They're more flexible. Um, they, 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 they're in a, in a good state of health right now. And that's a worthwhile investment, right? So, that's, so there's a prophylactic reason. So when you do an, an operation to prevent something bad from happening, you should not expect to see a change in their health-related quality of life. In fact, you may see a little bit of a decrement and they should come back the baseline. Now, imagine doing a cohort study of a population with a spinal deformity or hip, uh, hip subluxation, and you mix both those groups in the same group and you've made no attempt to stratify those two populations you will dilute potentially the, the benefit. And so one of the things that I did with the HARM study group was very early on when we, when we were designing sort of the, 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 the structure of, the, of that database, I said, make a concerted effort at the beginning to get the surgeon to state, am I, is this patient in the reactive group or the prophylactic group? 
And how you determine that is asking the parents, is the spine causing any difficulties now? If they say no to a series of questions, make them prophylactic. Call it prophylactic. If they're saying, yes, it's got this, call it reactive. So we do the same thing for our CHOP study. We ask a simple set of questions to parents. Do you think your child's hip is causing your child any discomfort? Yes, no, or maybe. Is the child's hip, you think, causing any difficulties with caregiving? Yes, no. And if it's yes, in what areas? You know, uh, diapering, changing, standing, sitting, whatever it might be. And if they say no to all those questions, they put in the preventive or the prophylactic group. If they say yes to those questions, they put in the reactive group. So now we can look at the outcomes in those two groups separately and see that in the first, in the reactive group, we're make, you're actually Im improving scores, and in the preventive group, we're maintaining where we are. Now, this is a great example of why in both those groups, you need a control group for whom they didn't have the intervention. So that in the preventive group, if they had the intervention, they stay the same. Is that because the operation didn't work? Is that because the outcome measure was insensitive change? Or are you actually maintaining their, their function that would otherwise deteriorate? And you wouldn't know that unless you had a control group that didn't have the operation. Then you would see, ah, they're declining. They're becoming more painful. They're having more seating difficulties. And this is why these observational studies can begin to answer those questions. Having a natural history cohort, which I strongly recommend to them, I said, you know, those kids who are either on a wait list or have uh, chosen to, to uh, refuse surgery, don't ignore them. Re you know, recruit them and follow them by natural history. And if you see a decline in them, you can then say, look, if we maintain them, that is actually a bonus. Uh, and we see that even in, in, in ambulatory cerebral palsy. Many of our kids that we do multi-level surgery from who are a little bit older, without it would deteriorate. So for them, you're not going to see big changes, but preserving their function is actually a success. So, um, so that's how I would see it. It's, again, an example of how if we didn't recognize that in our specialty, we're often doing these interventions to prevent bad things from happening in the future, we could underestimate the benefits we're doing. So it's just, it's, that's an important part to think to remember. Yeah, and I, and I know that Pat is, well, I think he's about to get it published or he's in the process of getting published, yeah. the comparative cohort study with a natural history cohort, exactly. which I think is is terrific. I mean, he said it's the most important study he's ever worked on, which I think is saying something. No, it's, it's, so it's, I, it's, you're it's, absolutely right. It's terrific, yeah. So do, do you, I, I know that there are some of the, Folks who have a difficult time with the uh, instrument, you know, cite the fact that at the end of the day, it is a caregiver preference instrument um, that's baked into the name rather than looking specifically at the classic patient related outcome um, that we have in a, you know, in a ambulatory verbal patient. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, you know, uh, let's forget outcome measures. If, if, if I had a patient like that, who there's no question that, you know, the holy grail would be to access, to try and access what that child thought. But these are children, the level four and level fives. The vast majority have such cognitive impairments that I will never be able to get their perspective. It's impossible, right? And I don't mean because of, of com communication difficulties. Some of them may be able to communicate with a, you know, um, with a communication device, et cetera. But their cognitive impairments make it impossible to really, really understand them. So who would I then go to for the next best source of information? It is the parents. It's the person who's taking care of the, of, of the child. They know them much better than I do. So if they say their child is unhappy, 
is unwell, is not healthy, is in, in pain or uncomfortable, or it's difficult to look after them, those are the things that I, as a, as a as their physician, is going to respond to. If they tell me they've got a contracture that's making it hard to diaper them, well, and and the child can't tell me that, I'm still going to go, you know, work with what the parents tell me. So it's completely consistent with what we do in our practice. We respond to parents, um, never mind, you know, because many of our children are too young to have an opinion in the first place, but also cognitively not, not, not mature enough to do it. So this notion that, okay, it's not the patient reporting it, therefore it's something else, I think is a bit um, uh, silly, to be honest, in this particular population. However, what that does mean is we're not measuring quality of life. So I go to great lengths to say that, you know, quality of life, you have to get that person's perspective. And you can't, it's somebody else's perception that quality of life. But whatever you call it, if we can all agree that that perspective is important and, and, you know, it may be a combination of their perception of the child's quality of life, the parent's own quality of life and how easy or difficult it is to care for them. At the end of the day, you know, it, they are a unit. They, the, the child with severe CP is reliant on a parent or a caregiver looking after them. So we've got to address their, their needs sort of collectively. And that's what the CP child does, and which is why it's embedded within the, uh, you know, within the title itself. The CP is not sort of a palsy, but caregiver priorities. This is what's important to them. So if yeah. you look at the content of the CP child um, and then say, all right, if I make gains in any of these items, we can all agree that that's a good thing. It doesn't matter whether it's the patient's perspective, the parent's perspective, or my perspective or not. You know, as long as, because ultimately... It is a proxy, that's true, but it's the, the best proxy that we have. It's better than my proxy, my being the proxy for that patient. So having said that, for kids with ambulatory cerebral palsy, for example, we have a child and a parent version. Um, and there it's very interesting. So we do want both their perspectives and they can be quite different. Um, and it's a great way to, uh, to have a discussion with the parents to reconcile those differences about, you know, whose priorities prevail here, and, 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 and a question I like the goal has the ability to do that. I feel the same way, and it's interesting in reading through the literature on it, it seems like every author feels that it's important in the limitations section at the end of the paper to cite the fact that this is a caregiver priority. And, and so I feel the same way that you do, which is that this is the most uh, organic way to evaluate the patient's life really to look at their caregiver for all the reasons that you cited yeah and and i think that 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 limitation that they state is is again comes from you know we would certainly use that as a limitation if for example we used a parent's uh a parent report measure for idiopathic scoliosis right that would be a huge limitation when we have access to to the to the, the adolescent's uh, perspective in a in, in a situation like a GMS is level five, who uh, is not just nonverbal but cognitively so severely impaired. Um, that's that's there's there's no alternative. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is great. Um, I, I wanted to, uh, the last thing I wanted to talk a bit about, um, you obviously have a very large role within POSNA. I know from your work at IPOS and, and at the annual meeting that you've got, you've been involved for 
you know, a long time. You've been involved. You've been involved in the uh, 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 at the board level and uh, certainly on an education level. But you also hold a very large role and have been past president of the AACPDM. And I'm curious, uh, and I've asked this of other people I've had on the podcast because it's interesting. Like, you know, I'm I'm pretty involved with SRS, but PAS is sort of where I find my home. How do you, as a as somebody who has sort of an interest in becoming important in both of those organizations, how do you strike a balance there? You know, I'm not sure there is a balance that needs to be struck. They they serve two different but complementary roles, uh, right? So my my affiliation with Posna, which is my my specialty home, um, is is uh, where I. Uh, want to share my 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 work that's much uh, that I hope has broader appeal and to learn from my colleagues and peers uh, about the work that they're doing that informs how you know I how I think and I approach my patients and so um that is one home my affiliation with uh, with the ACPDM is a more sub-specialized home that works with a very, very focused part of my popu- uh, the population I serve. It's very similar to those who are members of POSNA and SRS, for example. I mean, that would be, a, a, you know, very, very, very similar. So I don't see them as, as competing uh, roles at all. Uh, or um, I think, you know, where balance is, 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 becomes important is, you know, you to devote the time you need at, at any Significant level to two organizations. Yes, takes it does take uh, take time, um, but they are. I mean, both organizations. I'm very proud to be members of that. I, you know, hugely benefit from uh, more than I perhaps contribute back to. But that's. Uh, uh, but but being able to contribute is 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 part of why I do. You know what 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 I do as 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 many of the people you've interviewed will share with you. Yeah. I completely agree. And I'm curious, though, how does um, the orthopedist as a leader within the AACPDM differ? Because obviously not every leader is an orthopedist and they'll have neurologists and they'll have pediatricians. How did you view your role um, in that organization as opposed to, again, say some of the leadership roles you've had within POSNET, which is your specialty organization? Right. Well, um, there's a long history of orthopedics being very involved in the uh, foundation of the AACPDM and all the way through. So if you if you actually tracked the number of orthopedic surgeons who've been at the leadership level, it is I would venture to say one of the most represented uh, uh, you know as, as, as specialists there. So it isn't you know being an orthopedic surgeon as president of the AACPDM is not uh, an exception at all. That that is, uh, it, it happens uh, quite frequently. So so our, the incoming president is Tom Novacek, for example. If you look at the actual list of of, of members, uh, who, orthopedic members who've been in the leadership at, at uh, ACPDM, uh, orthopedics is very very well represented. At that level, at the board level, you know, we're not talking about orthopedic issues. You know, we're talking about population that we're serving, and it it sort of reflects again the way we these these populations are best served in that interdisciplinary uh, multidisciplinary setting so for example you know we have physiotherapists uh, who who are at the, the, the currently Susan Sienko Thomas is uh, um, is from the therapy world who is the current president um, so it's 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 a, it's a great organization that is you know 
recognized the importance of all these disciplines, and it's reflected in its in, uh, in its diverse uh, membership on the uh, on the board and and in the leadership. That's great. So um, I, I wanted to finish just on sort of looking at, at the future. So obviously you've, you know, we've, we've gone through a lot of the stuff that you've been involved with, and it really is remarkable. I, I think that having spent some time over the past week or so looking through the history of the work that you've done with uh, CP Child, it's, it really is remarkable. I'm curious at this stage uh, of your career, um, and again, you know, I know roughly where you're at because I know where Bob's at. What continues to drive you and what are the things in the next you know, decade or so that you're really hoping to sort of accomplish or set in motion uh, professionally or at your institution uh, within Posner ACBDM? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, again, I have to keep pinching myself that I'm, I am, like many of us in our field, uh, very fortunate to love what we do. Okay, I, I really... I, 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 I love what I do. I, I, I enjoy it. It doesn't seem um, uh, like work to me. And, or if it is, it is work, of course, I enjoy it. And, and I'm not ashamed to say that. Um, so, you know, when I think about what the fu- future holds, I would like to feel that way until I retire. Um, and I would like to think that I don't retire because I'm losing that joy of doing this work. I'm retiring because I think that now it's time to move on, uh, to spend more time with my family uh, and, uh, than, than perhaps I should have. I am not the role model for uh, work-life balance. Uh, <laughs> That's uh, a commonality. Yeah. Nobody on this podcast has been. Well, uh, I, I, I'm not so sure. Others have made a very concerted <laughs> effort to, to recognize that. Um, and, you know, you know, when I look back, that, that's something I could have done better with. Um, and, and I'm trying to make amends. Let's put it that, that, that way. And I have a, a, a family who, who wants me to make amends. And, and, uh, and, and, and I'm working on that. Um, but at the, end, at the end of the day, I, you know, if, if I'm thinking about, I, I want to be able to hang my gloves up when I feel like, you know, that's enough. I, I, I've, I've, I've. And I'm nowhere near there yet, um, uh, partly because I, 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 I love what I have to do. In, in terms of, of, of uh, clinically and research, the, the, I, I would like to see that the work that I've done is, 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 uh, has had some sort of influence um, uh, in, in, in guiding how these populations are treated. Um, the outcome measures is, you know, the, the parts of my research program is, is, is really trying to understand the patient or the parent perspective to inform the development of these outcome measures and then using these tools in clinical trials to generate evidence that any of our interventions are making a difference and not just for CP. So we've got um, a measure for low limb deformity. We've got one for muscular dystrophy. Um, and what I'm really excited about is we're working on, uh, on a couple of measures for fractures. Every clinical trial on fractures that you can think of, I can predict what the answer is. No difference between treatment A or treatment B. That's because the outcomes we're using are not sensitive to pick up those changes. So we've come about it in a very different approach to really, again, define outcomes from the, from the child and parents' perspective. You know, how do they conceptualize what a really perfect outcome after fracture is? And there's some interesting things and, uh, that have completely been ignored so far uh, by, by, by the field. So we're working on that. 
So what I'd like to see is, is once we have these outcome measures, um, that we can simplify the way they are used so they are less of a burden on the persons who are completing them. So that's a major focus right now, is how do we make these actually useful to patients and parents? So right now, you know, they take 20 minutes, sometimes half an hour to complete the outcome measure, uh, but that doesn't help them. It doesn't help the parent. They complete that because they're part of a research study, but how it, it's 20 minutes of their time that they could be doing something else that's more interesting or useful. Uh, they don't get anything out of it, right? It's their goodwill. Uh, so how, how can we harness these to actually help them? And um, so one of the ways that we're thinking about doing that is what the unique features of the outcome measure we've developed is that for every item the outcome measure, we have created a third element, which is to say, is making a change in this item an important goal for you? So that's there in the goal, that's there in the CP child now, it's going to be there in, in, in the other measures that we've developed. Now, if this becomes part of the routine um, sort of care where parents and children can complete this ahead of a clinical appointment, where at the end of it they submit electronically, it also submits a report that lists the goals that they've identified are important to them. That becomes useful to them because they can bring it to you and me and say, what are you going to do about this? This is why we've come to see you. Here are our goals. These are that, uh, and you and I can then say, look, that one we can treat. That, we can do something about that. This one doesn't need an operation. That It just needs a, an adjustment of your environment or your orthotic or whatever. For this one, we don't have a good answer yet. You know, we don't, and uh, so it will actually provide us some useful information to guide our decision-making and actually give them a, an, um, a good reason to complete it, even as they complete it and can generate a score so we can see before and after if we've made a difference to the outcome. So, uh, you know, a, a big interest of mine is to uh, inculcate that culture where all of us in the field uh, are embracing this concept that patient report outcome measures, when they're designed uh, developed and designed well, can not only inform our research outcomes, but also help with decision making and be helpful to parents and families. Now, that's that's we're a long way from that, but that's what I'm I'm working on, so that it becomes part of routine um, and and use uh, taking advantage of the electronic health record to to make that possible. Yeah, it's I mean that is it's it's so valuable to have that that process in place because. You know, obviously in the States, the U.S. News uses the uh, presence of the CP child as, as some part of the, the scoring rubric that they have for what makes a top center. But what, what we found really? in our Really? I wasn't aware of that. Is, is that one of the criteria it, they use? The, last year it came up. and But the reality is, is we've implemented it. And we and several, several of us, like I've implemented it as part of the HARMS study group. But as others in the, in the group are implementing it, you realize, A, it does take a tremendous amount of time. B, there's not a, a very natural way to make sure that that is uh, uh, filled out ahead of time. And then C, that even the interpretation can't, I mean, you know, if, if you give most people the CP child in its, in its uh, rough form, you can't make heads or tails of it right away. So I think Absolutely. that Absolutely. that that's, so all of the work that you're doing on it really uh, is, is critical because you can see from the, uh, from the research side when it's been laid out in a thoughtful process, the benefit that can be gained from our interpretation of it, but how to do that on an on the fly process is obviously is, is going to be a work in progress, but I think it's yeah. amazing. 
Well, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we've been lucky because we're funded. It's part of research. We're collecting that. So we have someone to go after them and, 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 and things. But, you know, for, for other places who, yeah, it has to be made simpler. And we can take advantage of, of, of electronic uh, uh, versions that they can do on the, at their own time. But the key thing is it has to generate some value for the parents and, and the children themselves. They need to fit to see, you know, complete it and say, ah, this is useful because it now gives me a list of things that I can say, you know, I want changed or I would like to see make difference in that. And it allows me then uh, them to use that as a conversation starter with, you know, with you to negotiate, you know, where, where to focus, uh, to focus on. So that's the value that I would, you know, I, I'm hoping that that we can create. And then when you've got a large enough database of this, you can have a dashboard. So, you know, a child... Uh, with such and such a score is at the, you know, 60th percentile for a child of a similar age with similar severity of that particular condition, um, so that, you know, it, it actually creates some meaning beyond just a number, um, because otherwise it's fine for a study, you know, before and after you measure the difference, it's clinically significant, that's great. But but to make this part of your routine, it has to create value that that in a way that it doesn't do yet. And and so that's the work that we, we're, we're focusing on right now. That's terrific. Well, real quick, because we're, we're almost out of time, but I did want to ask, because we focus so much on your life and on your work, but uh, you, uh, like, you know, like we talked about, you came from, uh, from India and now you've lived in Canada for a long time. What are the things outside of work that you enjoy? What, have, what parts of Canadian culture um, have, you, have you come to love over the years? Well, it's not ice hockey, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've, uh, having lived in Minnesota, where it was, where it was, you know, those six years of the winter there, uh, that was real uh, winter. I moved south. Toronto is actually south of Minneapolis. Uh, yeah. Okay. And, and because, because it's on, on one of the great, it's on the, on the lake, it's weather's actually moderated. So it's, the winters are not quite as severe as they were in, 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 the, in the Twin Cities. But uh, I, I, I still enjoy the winter and we can do things. But what, what I do for fun, I used to row competitively when I, was, uh, uh, when I lived in India, and it was a very big part of my, uh, of my life, which I haven't been able to continue. But what I've, you know, in, it, after coming to Toronto, tennis is what keeps me physically active, um, and I, I really enjoy it. I don't play it well, uh, but I, I don't give up. So, so <laughs> I'm a very frustrating player to play with. I, 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 I never win any shots, but uh, if, if, if I win a game, it's because the other person lost. It's not because I did something marvelous. I just, you know, go for everything. But, but tennis is what, uh, uh, what I get a lot of pleasure uh, from. Uh, my wife and I love to travel, and I have to say that increasingly she's enjoying traveling with me for work. Before COVID, um, uh, you know, I would say a few years early in, Early in my work life, Anita didn't like to travel with me because she thought I was useless when I was out uh, in, in a conference because I was so sort of, my mind was so sort of focused on that. It was hard for, to, to, to uh, get me out of that headspace. Now, uh, you know, I've matured and, <laughs> and I can separate the work from the, from the fun and uh, she actually enjoys traveling uh, with me. And we travel for, um, as, a, as a couple for, on holiday uh, every year, at least a couple of times. Uh, there's a big world out there that we want to see, and uh, we've seen a lot of it, but there's lots more to see. Um, and I have to say that COVID's been uh, uh, great f uh, for us. Uh, you know, on my research days, I, I've, on many of those days, I've been able to work from home, 
which my wife has, has actually enjoyed. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's, it's been good, good, good that way. I love to read. Um, I, I enjoy reading and uh, it goes in fits and starts, but that's something that, um, um, you know, can occupy my time. Well, that's good. So I've, ac- I've asked some of the people who've been on before, do you have any favorite books recently or in, in years past that you like to recommend or gift to people or things that are at the top of your list? I'm always looking for new ones. Don Bay and I have actually sent each other books in the past. All right. Well, here's a book that I really recommend. Um, uh, that's been that's that's been very influential for me. Uh, it's nonfiction. It's called Mistakes Were Made. I've heard and of it, parent- uh, but in parentheses, but not by me. Okay, and it's uh, it's by Elliot Aronson and I think Carol Tavris. So they're two social psychologists, and the 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 subject of the book is cognitive dissonance. This notion that our, we are wired, uh, our brain does things to protect us from ourselves. In other words, the more we invest in, some, in, a, in a particular decision, even if it was the wrong decision to make, we will find a way to justify that that was the correct thing to do. Um, we're all guilty of it. But if we were aware of that uh, and reminded ourselves, we might you know, we, we may be able to question our own decisions and be more open-minded about it. And it draws on history, uh, culture, the arts, medicine, uh, politics, um, uh, the movies. It, 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 it draws from all of these disciplines to illustrate this phenomenon. It's beautifully written. And I think uh, it's, it's uh, it, it, I, I recommend it to my, to my fellows who have any, you know, who it, it just, gives you a tool to get some insights into our own ways of thinking. So that's, that's one, uh, one book I would recommend. Well, that's great. That's, a, that's going on my list because I'm, I'm just finishing a book, so I, I need a new one. Um, well, that's great. And sometime we'll have to play tennis together because I also struggle heartily at playing tennis. I had a lesson this morning, and I realized that as long as I continue to practice orthopedic surgery, uh, act as a, f- a husband and, and father and uh, do research that my tennis is always going to stay roughly mediocre at best, uh, oh, yeah. but I enjoy it. It keeps, yeah. it keeps me, my, my, uh, it keeps my, me my tennis is, is, is definitely mediocre. It's not fun to watch, uh, but I enjoy it thoroughly. And, uh, you know, I managed to get uh, some good games, but uh, it's been a while since I've been on the court. Uh, it's, uh, you know, obviously we can't play outdoors at this time, uh, of the year, but uh, um, and the indoor courts are closed, unfortunately, in Toronto right now. So, but yes, I'd love to. Play well, I've heard them. some rumors. I've I've heard some rumors that maybe we can. There's a uh, group who is interested in doing a, a annual meeting uh, uh, tennis, you know, outing. So maybe we can find that sometime. That'd be fun. I uh, see. I'm always, uh, you know, embarrassed to admit that I play tennis because I play so horribly. I just feel like I'll make a fool of myself, but, uh, but I will still, uh, I will still play. <laughs> I think there's probably a, an army of us just like you out there <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who didn't yeah. play in college. I bet, or be, anything. I bet you're being modest. I'm being honest. I really am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll let my wife tell you this story sometimes. So, well, Uni, this has been super delightful. I, I, I can't thank you enough. Um, I mentioned in the uh, sort of the lead in that I, you and I have not had a chance to cross paths a lot, but I've, you're somebody who I've listened to a ton and I've always really enjoyed reading, uh, things that you put out and just listening to you talk. So thank you. This could not have been any more enjoyable. Well, that's, that's very kind, Nick. I, you know, I, 
I talk a lot. It's not one of my strengths to be to being concise, but uh, I <laughs> enjoy the opportunities to to discuss some of these things with you. And uh, uh, thanks for doing this for Posner in general. I think uh, the other podcasts I've had a chance to listen to a few of them. They're excellent, and I'll I'll now listen to all of them. Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, well, thank you.